Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We explore topics that are shaping clinical care, medical research, medical education, and challenging us to reimagine medicine. We bring together clinicians, researchers, educators, and leaders to share the ideas and innovations that are changing healthcare. In this episode, we will discuss the role that big data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence play in precision medicine. I'm Dr. Johnny Lipschitz. I'm Dr. Katie Bright. We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. Precision medicine takes a big data approach to disease prediction, prevention, detection, and treatment designed to benefit both individual health and public health. The promise of precision medicine is to enhance our knowledge of disease and identify treatment as well as medication that is best suited to the individual patient. Advancements in technology are rapidly expanding the possibilities. In this episode, we are going to explore the role that big data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence play in precision medicine. It's great to have you all with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Joining us today is Dr. Will Heisey. Dr. Heisey is the Research Director for the Department of Clinical Data Analytics and Decision Support. He also serves as an Assistant Professor in the Division of Toxicology at the University of Arizona College of Medicine and directs our Precision Medicine theme. He's the Chair of our Black Course and Theme Subcommittee and a voting member of the Curriculum Committee. Dr. Heisey is a medical toxicologist and family physician. His teaching and research interests include critical care toxicology, precision medicine, and clinical decision support. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's very nice to be here. So it's been really interesting as a physician to just kind of see some exciting changes, especially over the past uh, decade when we've kind of been moving from sort of a fee-for-service, productivity-driven to more of a value-based quality care reimbursement structure. And big data and data analytics are sort of helping to change and pave the way um, for this possibility. Can you speak to and explain maybe how the availability of data and the capability of performing complex analytics can improve patient outcomes or maybe how they already are? I think that some of the ways that we're seeing the promise of precision medicine delivered the soonest is in the area of pharmacogenomics where we look at um, drug gene interactions. Some of these are really complex. I mean, frankly, even as someone who thinks about pharmacology a lot, it's hard to remember exactly what liver cytochromes metabolize any particular drug. And what we're able to do is actually take the knowledge that's gained through lots of basic research and translational research and then bring that to the bedside using the analytics and the, um, the big data capabilities that have been developed inside electronic health records. Electronic health records can be really um, frustrating for people and complex and there's a lot of information in there or approaches to taking care of patients that sometimes seem to slow it down. And so one of the things that we've been trying to do is take and make it more useful um, in a way that uh, is thoughtful and that requires the least effort on the part of the clinician in order to interact and use this kind of massive collection of data and genetic information that's available to them. So when we talk about pharmacogenomics and we include the idea of genomics, is this purely a patient-independent type of phenomenon where the the analytics don't actually have to be 
uh, in contact with the patient. So you could literally go into a database for that patient's genome, or do you need to have some physician-patient contact? No, I mean, there still has to be some amount of uh, clinician intuition that's involved because, you know, people aren't just a product of their genes. They're a product of so many different factors. And really, we just start to kind of scrape the surface as to what we're capable of. But if we can take genetic information about how folks metabolize particular drugs and we can get 20 or 50% closer, uh, then we've made a big stride toward picking the right medicine for the right person at the right time. I was hoping you could speak to this from the medical education standpoint, um, especially because I know this is really your, a lot of your focus here at the, at the College of Medicine. So in medical education, diagnostic and treatment pathways kind of guide our decisions. We're always learning like by rote memorization these pathways. Yet some of these um, big avenues of data analysis can alleviate some of this rote memorization. And can you speak to that a little bit? And then have you seen some inherent biases in resistance to sort of wanting to incorporate some of this new technology and, and big data? In general, once, fo once physicians and once patients see it in practice, um, the, the sort of interest in it has been extremely high and people are very, very willing to use it. Uh, when patients see the kind of impact that it could potentially have on their medications uh, and selection, they, they seem to embrace it wholeheartedly. Um, and that's been true um, in local community clinics, in large healthcare systems in town, and uh, at the Veterans Administration. In terms of the educational needs, we know that most physicians, and this is reported in the literature, are not terribly comfortable with um, genetic information and how to deal with it. And, you know, there's different kind of steps along the way of levels of understanding that we need to have. And one of the things that we've embraced here is that there's a certain baseline level of information about precision medicine and genetics that every physician needs to have. And they need to be comfortable with that, and they need to be able to reason as ha from that, as you mentioned, in terms of clinical reasoning, that needs to be one of the tools in the toolbox that they have. And then if they're able to understand at a deep level where precision medicine is coming from and apply it in some practical aspects in medical school, whether that's in problem-based learning that we do or whether that's in a clinical setting, then that sets them up to be able to understand and apply when new things come to bear. Because we know that there's always going to be new information in precision medicine throughout their careers and, and that we can't teach that all to them. So it's really important with education, as we've been talking about, that practice makes perfect, but we also need to uh, empower all of our students with the right tools to be able to absorb new information, especially at the exploding rate by which new technologies and new processes uh, come about. So far, our discussion has really been at a higher level about precision medicine and pharmacogenomics, and I think that our listeners would benefit from more specific examples. I know from looking over the work that you're doing that you are specifically involved in a project with regards to pharmacogenomic testing for veterans, and perhaps there's something specific in there that you can pull out as an example of how uh, this type of testing has empowered clinicians to provide better care or even for patients to accept diagnosis or treatment strategies. So the program that you're referring to, which is at the Veterans Administration Hospitals, um, goes by the acronym PHASER. And what that is is a granted program to do testing 
and implementation on a quarter of a million veterans across the United States. Here at Phoenix, um, we are the third or the fourth, depending on how you look at it, uh, place in the country that started testing our veterans. And we're um, testing several hundred so far, and we expect to move into the many thousands. What that actually does is provide free testing for our veterans to have the most common 11 genes tested and then for us to be able to take that and guide their medical treatment from those uh, 11 gene tests. The interesting thing is that that program is an implementation program so they are the, the 11 genes with the highest level of evidence to support that right now we can take and make a difference in patient care by testing those. Over time, we're hoping to sort of look at what the outcomes are for these patients as they have their medications guided by these, this genetic information. And those are 11 genes for 11 diseases or 11 genes that overlap and interact? There are 11 genes that um, code for drug metabolizing enzymes. So in some cases, someone might... We have what we call normal, which is just the most common one in the population types of metabolism. Some are poor metabolizers and some are ultra rapid metabolizers of particular drugs. Turns out that 98% of us have at least one of those genes in which we are either a poor or an ultra rapid metabolizer and will have an unexpected either lack of efficacy or toxicity to a particular kind of medication. I'm going to go out on a limb because my research team was talking about this last week and what we do know is that metabolism changes based on time of day. So during sleep, you have a different metabolic profile than you might have when you're awake. And what's your initial thought on this? And I know I'm coming clearly out of the blue, but it, does it matter when those drugs are taken before bed or after waking up? Well, it certainly does. I mean, there's definitely minor differences uh, in how you metabolize drugs based on you know, what you had for breakfast that morning and which side of the bed you rolled out of probably. The, frankly, the ones that we're using right now are, are relatively blunt instruments, but are well proven. So if, if we're going to guide your medications off of it, we're not talking about a 10% change. We're talking about a complete avoidance of a particular drug or a 50% dose reduction or a 200% dose increase. These have good evidence, but they're not terribly precise, if you will. They're more precise than anything that's been previously done. But I think over time, we're going to understand a lot more about both the pharmacokinetics in terms of how much medication there is available and the pharmacodynamics in terms of how that medication interacts with a particular organ system. And I would assume, excuse me, Katie, for jumping in on this exciting topic, but I'm assuming that you could also then do uh, uh, dual drug administration to potentially inhibit or enhance specific enzymes so that a p patient could benefit from a drug where normally their genetic profile would, would prevent them from benefiting from those drugs. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think that we are just on sort of the front edge of understanding exactly numerically how much particular medications will inhibit the metabolism or induce the metabolism of other ones. And we have to adjust that. So it's not as simple as just you have this gene, you get this much of this drug, right? It, how, what your size is and what race you are and what other medications you're taking all have to come into play. And this is where some of this sort of data analytics stuff 
gets really important because it's just incredibly complex. None of us can keep all of that information at once inside of our heads. But of course, the computer that is helping you make decisions can do that calculation incredibly fast. I think it's so exciting because I, you know, I've seen it mainly in the behavioral health world being at an integrated practice and looking at things like for treatment of depression and anxiety, but adding some of the other chronic diseases to the mix and getting big data sets like this just so we can make it more readily available to the general population. Yeah, I think the biggest early promise is in mental health, uh, cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. Those are probably, and, and maybe some antipsychotics and anticonvulsants, and th those are the medications that are, I think, ready for real action right now. And doing these big, having these big data sets will be huge for getting it a little more mainstream. It's kind of a buzzword, even my patients, everyone's talking about precision medicine and asking about it, not always covered, but they're all interested in it and learning more. So on that, on that front, can you talk about some of the, um, some of these buzzwords and these exciting potential future technological advancements? And what do you think is our next big, big advancement that might impact health um, and the healthcare landscape as a whole? Well, in, in terms of this specific area that we've been talking about, I think that a recognition of the impact on individual patients and in large groups of patients will be able to set the stage for this to be relatively commonplace. You know, we have, if you will, sort of early adopters using this right now, but the amount of reimbursement for this and the amount of testing that's available it, in some ways is still sort of the wild west right many of these programs are being grant funded as we're able to prove that this improves the health of human beings mm -hmm. then it will be much more common in some ways you know you could draw an analogy to the advent of the smartphone where there were a few people that were using it and it was an incredible thing but it had limited impact on the world and then over the next five years or so, suddenly the vast majority of Americans possessed a smartphone and they were able to do things with that that we never would have imagined to be possible. I think that the second piece of it is how to convince the, the payers. Yeah. That the, also, we're keeping people out of the hospital. We're keeping that it's, it's individual health and satis, you know, satisfaction, but it's also cost effective to not be throwing SSRI after, you know, medication after medication at a patient where they keep right. bouncing back to the hospital and we, we can find the right thing. In some rapidly. cases, we're talking about medications that can otherwise take months to find the correct dose mm -hmm. for patients w without any exaggeration whatsoever. And then they may have to find another one and it takes months to decide if that's the right dose. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, we might be able to get folks to where they are feeling much better in a couple of weeks. Do you have any familiarity with the FDA and how the FDA is dealing with this? Um, I know I don't have that information, but I would assume if I'm making a drug and I have a drug, I'm going to say that it's going to treat this condition. But now we're putting a lot of footnotes on it. It may con treat this condition under these situations for these particular patients. And so is there a change, is there a change needed by the FDA to accept precision pharmacogenomics or um, do the existing practices work? As we speak, the FDA is evaluating the evidence and moving forward in this area. You'll find descriptions of pharmacogenomics inside some drug labels, mm -hmm. but in no case will you find really concrete recommendations. The concrete recommendations that we have are coming from NIH-funded nonprofit entities who are doing really good reviews of the evidence. It's interesting you mentioned that because actually 
literally today the FDA released, released a table of common drug metabolizing enzymes and the medications that they affect and how. They didn't have any particular recommendation on this, but just today the dialogue has resulted in this release of a table with specific kinds of differences called polymorphisms in these genes and what drug they affect. So right now it's more of caveats that we're learning and still in an infantile or a juvenile stage with regards to understanding how all this fits together, but know that uh, once we figure it out, using not only the advancements in healthcare, but also the advancements in uh, computer algorithms that will be able to better serve individual patients as well as the general public. Right, and that certainly seems possible. And that's what we're trying to train all of our medical students and future physicians in being able to do, because this is what we know is going to be most helpful to patients is going to change over time. But the concepts and the understanding that they have is going to be what gets them to where they need to be in the future. Well, well said. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your insight with us, Dr. Heisey. We're gonna take a small break and then we'll be joined by another guest shortly. Thanks, guys. The Reimagined Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital and the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affair Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and Associate Dean of Clinical and Competency-Based Education at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. She is a family physician practicing at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Welcome back to the Reimagined Medicine Podcast. We're pleased to have Dr. Hamid Abbas Zadigan join the conversation. He is an informaticist and internist with the Phoenix VA Healthcare System. He also serves as a clinical associate professor in biomedical informatics, as well as fellowship program director of clinical informatics at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. As I was preparing for this podcast and knowing we were going to talk about data as the, the beginning element of how artificial intelligence, machine learning, informatics comes to bear, I was thinking about my uh, upbringing and my training as a graduate student with data. And we got some um, advice that I no longer accept. And that advice was, let's beat our data into submission until we get the result we want. Let's uh, interrogate it in a way that's going to allow us to uh, achieve the goal that we're seeking. As you are bringing up a generation of new informaticists and they're dealing with data, what's the philosophy on how these individuals should review their relationship with data? Uh, that's an outstanding question. Um, so relationship with data. I mean, I think all of us have relationship with data. We use uh, Google Maps, Siri Maps, Waze uh, for figuring out how to get to where we want to go. We use our health data to know where, where we are with disease processes or even if you have no disease processes. But data is just information, and the science of that information is our field. That's what informatics is, the X of information. Um, and so really we don't beat it, uh, we try to understand it and make meaning of it and most important of all is find a way to apply it. We are in the business of applying data, what kind of data? Healthcare data. In what domain? Healthcare. 
so direct patient care. So we can't really beat anything into submission. We have to take what we get and then figure out what to do with it. So if your blood pressure numbers are high consistently and the data tells us that that leads to all sorts of chronic disease and problems downstream. So we have to take action uh, ahead of time. Uh, we know that you just came back from the Consumer Electronics Show and are excited about some of those devices that are turning life into new pieces of data. Uh, what can we be excited about? What excites you? <laughs> That's a great uh, point. There's so much to be excited about. In fact, the uh, Consumer Electronics Show Digital Health Summit, uh, the theme was the cosmic transformation, that we're entering the decade of cosmic transformation of, of digital health. And uh, really, what does that mean? That, you know, we have kind of headed towards uh, data and software and information as being the most valuable thing, not necessarily hardware. So when we talk cosmic transformation, we're not talking about a new shiny uh, a car or, or phone or something. We're talking about the rapid growth and acceleration of objectivity and objective data and how that's used to make decisions. So case in point, is uh, what I noticed was a surge, uh, an improvement uh, in sensor-based technologies. Uh, so a lot of us are familiar with sensor-based technologies because of the fact that we've had Fitbits out for a long time. Some of us have uh, Apple Watches. And uh, the base technology of that is known as PPG, uh, also known as photoplasmography sensor. So these are non-invasive, low-cost, simple optical measurement techniques that are applied to the surface of the skin to measure different physiological patterns. And so one thing that was shown at this year's Digital Health Summit and the Consumer Electronics Show was that we can now check blood pressure from your ear. The blood pressure reading that I got was about where my blood pressure has been for the last couple of years. And uh, the studies that, of course, the manufacturer did, but the studies that they did were in comparison to the traditional cuff, and they were getting within acceptable uh, FDA uh, range of blood pressures. So what all that means is that sensor technology is better, which means data capturing is better, and objective data and objectivity is better. But what really is accelerating things into the cosmic domain is that the data and these gizmos and the Internet of Things and your sensors and your watch, everything is now getting hooked into machine learning. So with that, that means that pattern recognition is becoming at the forefront. You've been using machine learning without knowing it uh, for years. And a couple simple example is your Visa or MasterCard. Every single time you swipe your card, it goes through a machine learning based algorithm to determine the probability of uh, fraud. And if you've ever received a text message on your phone when you go to purchase something that is this a valid transaction, that was a machine learning algorithm that led to that. Another prime example is Amazon. Market basket analysis is all 100% uh, machine learning. Uh, and so when you search for something such as corn chips, uh, and you scroll to the bottom of the, uh, of the page, you're going to see salsa. So I told this to one of my colleagues, and his response was like, well, duh, of course chips go with salsa. But my response to him was, dude, that was a machine that figured it out, not a person. And it wasn't a machine that actively in this artificial alive manner figured it out, because that's not the case either. It's just noticing patterns that of all these people to my left that ordered chips, I noticed that they also ordered salsa. 
So again, it's, it's pattern recognition technology and techniques with machine learning hooking into our devices. Um, I think that's an interesting perspective and it's exciting because we know that we're more and more integrated with our artificial intelligence in form of Alexa, wearables like you talked about. I think I want to spin off of what you just said though because some of the pushback or resistance I hear from some providers in the artificial intelligence domain is sort of that AI is constantly learning, right? So most of the technology that we learn about for our EMRs, we hear, oh, they're taking 200,000 charts and this constantly learning from practices of providers. But there's that fear of what if they're not practicing, right? Like what if they're prescribing antibiotics for a simple viral upper respiratory infection or making sure that it, the material that it's learning is evidence-based and correct? Right. Can you speak to that just a little bit to yes. reassure some of those providers? Absolutely. So there are so at the end of the day, you're going to need to use some human logic and decision making if this is applicable to the patient. Uh, uh, let me go back to a different example and I'll come back to healthcare. So myself in the mornings, I'll utilize Siri and give the address of where I'm going. And I'll look at the different options it gives me based off the traffic, which is all machine learning. And I'll notice from time to time, it'll suggest a route where you exit off the highway and come back up and then get back on the highway. I almost never have taken that route because I know it's slower. So coming back, just because the machine suggested it doesn't mean it's gonna be the best option for your certain circumstance. Um, so in the case of healthcare, just because I'm suggesting to you, well, medicine is not only just personalized, but there's a lot of factors in the healthcare uh, domain that we have to take into account. So maybe this therapeutic won't work for you because you're smoking or maybe you have a higher predisposition or a lower predisposition, or I can't get you to come and see me because two days ago you rolled your ankle and now you can't drive. So there's so much complexity just to get two humans together as one side of things, and there's so much complexity into our healthcare decision-making because maybe I don't want it, or maybe I'm gonna try exercise before I take the pill, or maybe um, the whole new domain of, uh, of precision medicine and pharmacogenomics, maybe you're an ultra-rapid metabolizer or a slow metabolizer or intermediate metabolizer, and this medication won't work for you anyway. So what machine learning is going to do is going to take these different data points uh, and then prompt you on a, what do you think of this? You will still have to execute that decision. And one quick comment on artificial intelligence because I feel the essence of it is not quite understood. Two-thirds of artificial intelligence are alive and well right now. So when you think of artificial intelligence, I want you to think of three things hooked together. Number one, machine learning. Number two, robotics. And number three, natural language processing. So you're using natural language processing every day. Siri is a natural language processor. Machine learning, I just told you, fraud detection with your credit card and uh, also um, Amazon ma market basket analysis. So once robotics enters the realm, then we get into that. So if you take a step back and think about it, it's like, wait a minute. Oh, okay, this isn't going to be so bad. I'm using Siri all the time. It helps me to set a reminder without me having to stop my car and type it in. And then I'm using machine learning. It helped detect fraud and it helped suggest uh, another color, something that I wanted on Amazon. So those aren't so bad. It didn't take over and the terminators didn't arise. And so artificial intelligence is C3PO. It's a natural language processor. It's a robot and it learns. I, and just to 
just to kind of punctuate what you said, because I do still see a lot of resistance in the medical world. Um, how would you reassure patients that might be listening to that this isn't a, this can be trusted and it can maybe even right. improve your relationship with your... I, I think that the relationship you have with your clinician on a personal level is extremely important. And so between the two of you, you will determine what's best. The data and the information and the gizmo that, that you know, capture that information is a tool that might help and it might not. Again, I'm not going to exit the highway for two, three miles and hop back on. I'm just going to stay with this path. And so it's going to be the same thing in healthcare. I noticed these 10 things about you. What do you think about taking direction to the left or what about the direction to the right? It's a very complicated decision. Yeah. Certainly very exciting. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Abbas Zadigan, for being with us today. Um, our time has come to an end, but it's certainly been a pleasure speaking with you. Absolutely. Thank, thank you for you. having me. It's You're an honor. Katie, this was clearly an exciting episode that talked about where healthcare is going. And as a college of medicine, we're definitely uh, training another generation of providers that need to take advantage of all the tools that are around them. And we definitely heard from both of our guests that there are data swirling around us in all different ways. And we can't fear those data because those data lead to patterns. And those patterns are simple enough for us to understand uh, how our behavior changes or how our response is to different types of foods or medications or lifestyles and uh, other elements that can be used to have us live to the fullest capacity. Absolutely. The don't fear data is a great take home point. And, you know, I like how we spoke with our guests about using the data as a tool in our tool belt to further enhance our patient doctor relationship. And it, and it does, you know, I have patients that do already bring in things from their wearable devices that really helps me with understanding what's going on in different times of day during different stimuli and how we can best manage things like their blood pressure or diabetes, whatever it may be. So using it to really just help us have even better patient outcomes and relationships will be a definite um, you know, interesting and, and exciting thing to look forward to. Unquestionably, it almost goes back to the old tradition of journaling. Like you have a mm -hmm. book and you're just writing down your feelings, your actions, your uh, engagements, and how that changes over time. And now we have the opportunity of uh, a greater density of information to be collected using some of the wearables that we heard about mm -hmm. uh, that are collecting data all the time about our responses and teaching us or educating uh, uh, our algorithms about how things differed today than they did last week mm -hmm. and that can be used potentially as an early warning sign or as a trigger or as an opportunity to intervene earlier as opposed to waiting until um, until things become clinically manifested and the data could or the data algorithms could be smarter to detect those things. Absolutely and and hit it at that prevention stage versus being a little behind the eight ball when we when we start as of already a diagnosed condition. And it's, it's really interesting to see the big data coming out and, and it's focused on some of our main players. First and foremost, we've seen most of our discussions centered around behavioral health and... Um, cardiology. Cardiology, cancer with the, um, speaking about the precision medicine, but I just look at it like, uh, you know, the sky's the limit for where this can go in the healthcare domain. And going back to what Dr. Heisey was saying about pharmacogenomics, those three areas of cancer, uh, cardiovascular, as well as behavioral health, they all have many, many drugs, both pharmaceutical and nutraceutical type of drugs that can influence. We just don't know for whom. 
And so uh, those seem like they're fields where we're going to see the impact of these algorithms. And as we learn from those algorithms, they can extend to other neurological conditions or uh, physical conditions or even interpersonal conditions about how to uh, have relationships work out as well. This was a fascinating discussion, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Yes, we are. Tune in next time when we ex extend the conversation to explore the intersection of machine learning, medicine, and health policy. Lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. Bright out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagined Medicine podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CC BYSA 4.0 license. <laughs>